the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, thank you so much for reading. I'm going to lead us in prayer, uh, and then we're going to be looking at this little letter to John. Let's pray together. The unfolding of your word brings light and gives understanding to the simple. Father, we confess our ignorance and simplicity when it comes to knowing truth about you. We pray that you would grant us understanding and make us wise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people write about it and films are made of it and songs are sung. Men and women swear to it. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Love, love me do. You know I love you. All you need is love. Love Island, love actually. Our subject this morning is something the whole world is interested in, and the opening lines have it there. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. And as part of our studies in all of the writings of the Apostle John this year, we now have come to his little second letter. And I'm persuaded that it is John the Apostle who is the person described as the elder 
in the greeting of verse 1, the content and vocabulary of this letter corresponds so tightly to 1 John, and the themes of 1, 2, and 3 John are so tight into the gospel, John's gospel. One scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, suggests that it is scarcely to be doubted that the same author is behind them all. Some have suggested that the elder is a different person to the Apostle John, and he also wrote John's Gospel. But when you read John's Gospel, it's full of eyewitness testimony. I actually saw. The whole thing is actually grounded on eyewitness testimony, and so it seems highly unlikely that it's somebody other than the original Apostle John. And you can see he's writing to a whole church. I think that's right. The title there, the elder to the elect lady and her children. I suppose it could be an individual woman. But when you get down through to verse 12, I have much to write to you. It's a you plural. And in verse 13, he refers to the children of your elect sister. Now, I guess that could refer to another woman with her kids, but it seems most likely that he's referring to the church as a lady rather than an individual woman. But the subject is love, and you can't miss that, can you? Whom I love in truth, not only I, but also who know the truth. However, the first sentences suggest that it's not simply love that's on the table. And you see it there in verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love. So what we're going to do this morning is be led by the Apostle John in an exploration of the interface between love and truth, and truth and love. And we're going to see that true love, true love, is inseparable from true truth, that the right kind of truth will initiate and inspire the right kind of love, and that for love to flourish truth must be embraced, and where truth is quashed or denied or sidelined or drifted from, then love dies. Now, people like points to their talks and structure, and so we've got three points this morning. The heart of love, we're going to see true love is enabled by true truth. The act of love, true love is expressed in real action. The death of love, True love is extinguished as you dilute true truth. And if you wanted one verse that I think really everything hangs on once we understand it, it's probably verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. I hope that will become clear as we go along. And if you want a kind of statement of what I think John is trying to achieve in this letter... It is this, that we love enough at St. Helens to guard the truth, that you love enough to guard the truth, or that we guard true truth, so have true love. The two are so tightly connected. Lose one, you've lost the other. Well, our first point, true love is enabled by true truth, and here we have the heart of love. And you can see that the Apostle John understands genuine love to be initiated, defined, and sustained, shaped by the active truth of God's word as he has revealed it in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
That much, I think, is clear from the first two verses. The, elect to the, elder, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, did you notice the because there? He loves them truly because of the truth that dwells within them. The truth that inhabits them and him binds them together in love. Truth is the glue that holds the church together in love. And the language here is so close to John's gospel where John speaks about the Holy Spirit indwelling and binding together, but John here inserts truth rather than the Holy Spirit. It's just another little evidence that you cannot separate the Holy Spirit from the word of God and his truth. But you see, you have one, you have the other. You distance yourself from one, you distance yourself from the other. The truth of Jesus' person and work takes up residence within the believer. And that truth is then expressed in verse 3, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. You cannot separate the two. Because the truth is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore the truth is the truth of true love. Because the truth of true love inhabits the believer, therefore the believer is shaped by love. Because the truth that inhabits the believer is the truth that is everlasting, eternal, therefore the believer is bonded into an eternal fellowship with God the Father and God the Son through the truth. Because the everlasting truth that indwells the Christian believer is the eternal truth that bonds together all believers in an everlasting fellowship, therefore the believer is knitted into a family of loving truly that is headed by God the Father and reigned over by God the Son and indwells every believer. You might say that truth is the DNA of the Christian church and because the DNA is the DNA that is in its very essence love, then love courses through the veins of the true Christian we come to Jesus, we recognize the love of God, we're drawn to that love of Jesus, to the love of God. That seed of love is actually planted within the heart of the believer. And now growing within the believer is the love of God expressed in the truth of Jesus Christ. And he, she cannot but love those around them. We are knit together in this fellowship of truth and love. I use the language of DNA. You know, we were a big family event on Friday, a sad event, but a big family event. You know, the one particular aspect of, I see one or two families, one particular aspect of our section of our family, they all look, they could almost be identical. The same DNA, you just see them sitting in a block as they were, and you think, well, and they're, they're cousins and all the rest, but they all look more or less the same. The heart of love is truth. True love is enabled by true truth and if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indwelt by this true truth, this love. And so you're part of this loving fellowship that is an eternal fellowship. It's everlasting. You'll find it all over the world, wherever you'll find a true church, where the true truth is taught. And it goes on beyond the end of the age. It's glorious. I was going to have a little section on the love of God. You know, God said, love the world. 
that he gave his only son. He loved the whole world. He loved us to death. He loved us when our backs were turned on him and we were running miles from him. He loved us because he loved us. We didn't do anything to initiate his love. He loved us because his very heart is love. His, he says elsewhere in the Bible that his heart recoils within him and compassion grows warm and tender within him towards his wandering child. Somewhere else he says, he refers to a wandering son of his, my darling child, my heart yearns for you. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He loves us, and his very essence is love. God loves you, and he loved enough to send his son to die for you. God is love. Of course, this contrasts so totally with the world, doesn't it? You think of the world's love. It's always transactional. Have you ever thought of it? Even that phrase, I love you just the way you are, is dependent upon me staying the way I am. (laughs) There's an element of transaction in it. From the acid house to the opera house, Sweet Lady Jane, Eugene and Yegin, Tom Jones to Nora Jones, Eminem to Kanye West. Human love, it's all transactional. I love you because, and God's love is unconditional. I love you because I love you. But if this is the heart of love, How then is it expressed? The second point, the act of love, true love, is acted out. Verses four through six, John now appeals to the Christians in the church to continue in truth and love. And the language is familiar from his first letter, 1 John. Just look at verse four. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though we are writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now here you see truth is being equated with the commandment, and at very least the commandment has to be what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And that commandment has been repeated all the way through the first letter. Again and again, John has reminded them of the commandment to love. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed... And in truth. So when he says um, there in verse 6, this is love that we walk according to the commandments, what I think he's doing is referring to the, 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 the statement Jesus made that we love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. But then he distills it down into just one commandment that we love one another. And this is not simply trying to do the loving thing. 
in every situation that we find ourselves, regardless of what Jesus says. It is taking what Jesus says and seeking to obey his commandments and loving people in the situation in which we find ourselves. And if the love of God has been planted within me, then I will love God. And if I love God, I want to please God. And if I want to please God, I'll find out what pleases him. And as I find out what pleases him, I'll discover that love is the very essence of the God of the universe. And as I find out that love is the very essence of the God of the universe, I will love my brothers and sisters in the church truly. You know how in some families, you know, you, every now and then you get to the stage where you say to the kids, in our family we do things like this. Your parent, your mum and dad ever said that to you? You know, in our family, you know, we actually try and use our knife and fork at the table and we don't eat straight off the plate. Or, or in our family, you know, we don't bite our brother or sister before breakfast, that sort of stuff. You know, we have basic kind of rules of engagement of that sort. God says in our family, we love. This is the genetic code. I have evidenced it. You were conceived by it. You are indwelt by it. Now live it. And what a relief. Can you imagine if the God of the universe had declared his hand, and as he declared his hand, his hand was not one of unconditional love? Can you imagine that? And look at cultures and societies that are formed without the God of love at the heart of them. Cold, transactional, sterile. Look at families. John is not saying, love them if you find them bearable. <laughs> I just love the people I get on with. John is not saying, love them if you like them. That's not the love of Jesus. And John is not saying, love them simply because you've been told you must. John is saying, if the love of God has been planted within you, look at the cross, consider Jesus, think of the incarnation, See who's reigning in heaven today, the king of love, love. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We love because he first loved us. This is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother and sister. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Of course because the very essence of God is love. Now, I know some people will be saying, okay, let's have a few examples, and I'm not going to give you any, because, you know, like, what are there? Probably two, there are 100 people down at Ashburnham, so there are probably 250, something like that, people here today. And there will be 250 different ways in which we can express godly love. Look at the cross vertically, and he will show you how to love your brother and sister horizontally. As we look at the cross, he loved us actively. He actually chose to do physical things. He didn't simply say, I love you, and then left it there. He did stuff. He loved us unconditionally, and he loved us sacrificially. No such thing as love that doesn't cost. My wife Janet, sometimes when we're talking to couples together about their marriage, will say, picture your marriage as, as a garden with flower beds in it. What are you going to plant in it to cause it to flourish? I'll sometimes say to a bloke, look at the cross. See how he loved you. 
What act are you and I going to do today to demonstrate love? The heart of love. The truth of the Christian gospel causes the Christian's heart to race, to beat, to pulse with love. True love is driven by true truth. The act of love is worked out in tangible, practical expressions of love on a daily basis in the church. How are you going to love the person sitting next to you? The threat to love. From verses 7 through 10, we find out why John is writing this letter and what he wants us to do. And you can see as I read it that there are two commands. Command number one, watch yourself. Command number two, do not receive them. These could not be more important. You'll see as I read it that there's a very serious threat to love in the church. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, did you spot the deceivers in verse 7 who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh? And did you spot the progressives in verse 9 everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. To deny the coming of Jesus Christ may be to deny the incarnation. It may be to deny the coming of Jesus in the flesh, his risen physically from the grave, the resurrection of the incarnate Christ. And it may be the future coming of Jesus physically to reign and rule for eternity. John is unspecific. There are numerous theories, and I'm not going to speculate. I guess I could make a case for them being people who've gone on ahead because they've left behind the teaching of Jesus, that he is the incarnate Son of God, and that they were Jewish false teachers. And I guess we could make a case that they were arguing for a kind of disembodied representation of truth in a mystical experience of higher knowledge, that they were some sort of proto-Gnostic teachers. And I guess I could make a case that they were arguing for further ecstatic revelations apart from Jesus, and they were charismatic false teachers. But the point is that in the early church, there were multiple little house churches, numerous individuals seeking to gain a hearing in them. And so we have to picture house churches of 20 or 30 people, groups of families in villages or small towns with Armies of orators, teachers, traveling the ancient world, proffering their wares, if you like, with their begging bowl held out, asking for funding, and seeking an audience for their podcast 
or their Twitter feed or their network of social influence. And John is towards the end of his life. The other apostles are almost certainly now all martyred and dead. And he is adamant that we must preserve and keep that which they have worked for, the Christian gospel, in loving communities of truth and love. He declares them to be against Christ. That's what Antichrist means. They've departed from the apostolic word, what Jesus has revealed in a unique one-off declaration of the character of God. They've gone out into the world, out from the loving, truth-bound family, separating themselves from the community of apostolic truth and love, and they've gone out into the world. The Antichrist is not some figure in red tights with a forked tail and pointy horns. He is not confined to an 18-rated movie such as the Amateurville Horror or Pray for the Devil or The Long Good Friday. The Antichrist is simply somebody who is anti-Christ as he's revealed himself. And it's interesting that John describes them as going out into the world And then in verse 9, as going on ahead, that is advancing beyond the teaching of the apostles, and thus for the Christian person, progression from the teaching of the apostles is regression. They depart from the teaching of Jesus. They embrace the teaching of the world. They move into new ideas and theories They develop beyond the teaching of the apostles. And what are we to do? Watch yourself. Do not receive them. That he says, watch yourself, is significant. That is, he doesn't think that we are beyond being deceived. John doesn't consider you to be immune. We may have studied in Remark Learn, sat under sermons at St. Helens. We may have done a degree in theology. We may even be a Bible teacher ourselves. And still the Apostle John says, watch yourself. Because what is at stake, what would be lost, is the loving fellowship and community of the Christian gospel that has been created through the preaching of the truth. So watch yourself. But secondly, verse 10, do not receive them. In other words, don't let them into the church. Don't allow them to promote their teaching. Don't let them address the church. Don't have fellowship with them in any way. Don't share your resources with them. Don't partner with them in any spiritual endeavor. Distance yourself from them. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Now, the church, of course, met In houses, he's not saying that you shouldn't invite anybody into your house who is not themselves a a, a straight-down-the-line apostolic teacher. He's not talking about your own home. He's talking about the church, where the church met. And if anybody comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the apostolic teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. Don't give them any airtime. And notice the connection between truth and love, that this is the loving thing to do. 
that if we actually accept this antichrist, false teacher, who's progressed beyond the teaching of Christ into the church, we will ultimately destroy the love that exists within the church because true love is connected to true truth. It's the loving thing to do. It is the only thing to do if the community of love is to be preserved. Fail to do this, and there will not be a loving gospel church called St. Helens in the next generation. The apostle, at the end of his life, to the church, seeking to preserve what has been worked for for the next generation, speaks this word to every generation. And in our generation, if we will not distance ourselves absolutely from this kind of antichrist, beyond Christ, progressive teaching, then our children won't grow up in loving Christian community. As we close, I'm going to break all the rules for just a moment and read you a quote. You should never do this when you're finishing a, a talk of this sort, but I'm going to. It's from a man called Alan Stibbs in an essay he wrote in 1940. 1940. Alan Stibbs was vice principal of Oak Hill Theological College. Um, when I mentioned that I'd been reading this book many years ago to my predecessor, Dick Lucas, he said, Mrs. Stibbs, Alan's wife, always sat at the back of meetings doing the Times crossword as he was speaking. I take it that she'd heard the talks many times before and like many clergymen's wives. Um, anyway, we'll put that to one side. Then Dick said, Stibbs and Stott were the ones who taught us to do expository preaching. He was a very fine preacher. John Stott says on the front of this collection of essays, a lonely evangelical scholar in a sea of liberalism, we owe him much. He wrote an essay called The Bible as Revelation. Please listen carefully to the first two paragraphs. To some, the Bible is absolutely unique and from above, God-given. To others, it is only outstanding and from beneath, man-wrought. To some, it is and makes ours an indispensable revelation without which men cannot see the truth about God. It provides a final standard or court of appeal by which all claims to have found the truth can and must be judged. To others, it is rather the product of the spiritual discernment of men of old, a discernment which by the same spirit men today may not only equal but even supersede, so that a man enlightened by the divine spirit may so discern fresh or fuller truth as to be able rightly to criticize and even discard parts of Scripture. Now that is to John, as you go beyond. The Church of England is the back end of 150 years of the second sort of understanding of the Bible. 
The Archbishop before our current Archbishop, Rowan Williams, described the Bible as a touchstone. Very clever language. Not the foundation stone, a touchstone, by which he meant providing we effectively remain in touch with it, men today, by the Spirit, can supersede, even critique, the Scriptures according to the mood of the age they went out into the world. This is precisely what John speaks of in these verses. And what is at stake? What is at stake is a loving community of brothers and sisters who love each other in truth and are part of the eternal people of the everlasting God, the gospel, and everything that the apostles worked for. That's what's at stake. And our own eternity. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for this extraordinary divine love that you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus, that while we were still sinners, while we hated you and were hostile towards you, you loved us and you loved us to death, the death of your only son. We praise you that this love, this truth dwells within each and every one of your people and we pray that you would make us men and women, boys and girls who love truly Help us to obey you as we watch ourselves and refuse to receive those who teach anything other than what you have revealed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.